there had been abuse in my family, uh, but it was mostly musical in nature. Are you ready to get your world rocked? Ready! Are you ready to get your mind blown? Do it! One, two, three, four! Emily Sanday decided to leave neuroscience for pop music and ended up opening the 2012 Olympics. I'm Greg Cott from the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. UK superstar Emily Sanday discusses her career and performs for us live in the studio. And later in the show, we review the new album from Lowe. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You are listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. Greg, that, of course, is one of the most famous campfire-style sing-alongs ever. Give peace a chance. John Lennon and Yoko Ono front and center recording in a bed in Montreal. If you've ever seen video footage of that, just to the side is Timothy Leary, the acid guru, and one Paul Williams. Paul S. Williams was the first rock critic in the United States of America. He died at the age of 64 just last week. He was a fascinating character. The things that Williams experienced in the early days of rock and roll, flying into Woodstock on a helicopter, sitting next to his buddy, Jerry Garcia, somehow getting the recalcitrant Brian Wilson to open up and let him hang out for days in the studio as Wilson recorded the never-released Smile album. Paul never bragged about these things. He started the first American rock and roll magazine. It was called Crawdaddy, with the exclamation point. He was 17 years old, attending Swarthmore College, It beat Rolling Stone by a year. A year later, young Jan Wenner came to Williams and said, you know, I want some advice about starting a magazine. Williams told him basically, you know, concentrate on the celebrity aspect of it. That was not what Williams was interested in. He was interested in deep, passionate, insightful, intellectual criticism. And by 1968, rock journalism had already passed him by. He left Crawdaddy. He wrote two dozen books in the years that followed. He became, in the world of science fiction, the literary executor for Philip K. Dick. And then in the 90s, he returned to Crawdaddy, doing it as an offset-printed, homemade, hand-stapled fanzine. And he wrote as passionately about Kurt Cobain as he had about Bob Dylan, his all-time hero. He's an important figure in rock writing. We both admired and knew him, and he'll be missed. Indeed he will, Jim. Uh, Another loss this week in rock and roll, Phil Ramone, a behind-the-scenes figure in the music industry for a half a century, died at the age of 79, producer, engineer, arranger to the stars, some big heavy hitters, Frank Sinatra, Barbara Streisand. He was the producer behind three Grammy albums of the year for Ray Charles, Billy Joel, Paul Simon. Not a genre-specific producer, per se. He uh, He worked on Broadway productions like Chicago and The Wiz and movie soundtracks, Flashdance, Midnight Cowboy, 
as well as some really cool albums. Uh, worked on Bob Dylan's Blood on the Tracks, the band's debut. But the artist he was probably best known for working with, I think, was Paul Simon. The work that Ramon did in particular on Still Crazy After All These Years, Simon's most iconic solo album of the mid-'70s, is probably some of the best work he's ever done. Here's a track from that 1975 album that Ramon produced, Still Crazy After All These Years. The track is called Gone At Last on Sound Opinions. The night was black, rose were I'd see, snow was falling, gifts were high. I was weary from my driving, and I stopped to rest for a while. I sat down at a truck stop, I was thinking about my past, I've had Gone at Last by Paul Simon in honor of producer Phil Ramone, dead at the age of 79. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that's a song called Heaven by our next guest, Emily Sanday. The London-born Scottish-bred singer is a star in the UK and Europe, although she's not as well-known in the States. But that's beginning to change after an American tour promoting her 2012 album, Our Version of Events, as well as a key opening slot for Coldplay on their arena tour last year. Emily began her career in music as a songwriter. She was writing songs for people like Leona Lewis and even Susan Boyle. And now she's transitioning to the stage herself. A lot of people are lumping her in with the uh, Brit soul revival, people like Adele and Duffy. But I think her style is more akin to the storytellers like Nina Simone or Joni Mitchell, who are her inspirations as a lyricist. And she's combining it with a more youthful style and stage presence as exemplified by people like Alicia Keys or Lauryn Hill. In fact, you may recall her performance of the hymn Abide With Me at the 2012 London Olympics. So when Emily Sanday visited our studio, we were eager to hear her perform, but first we had to ask her about her original career path in neuroscience. Like 
I loved school when I was a kid and I loved science and medicine definitely felt like a career in which I could explore science and really push myself academically but have that social interaction with people. And then once I started uh, med school in Glasgow, the brain just seemed to be the one organ that I really fell in love with. So (laughs) I did three years of just kind of general medicine and then after that I focused uh, in on neuroscience. So after the four years graduated with neuroscience. But at that point, you know, as, as much as I did love medicine, I, I really wanted to pursue my dream of music. Um, but I'm very glad that I have my degree. And at some point, I'd, I'd love to, to go back and revisit science a wee bit. Now, I know you come from a family. Your, your father's an educator. Uh-huh, yeah. um, how, how did he, in particular, assess your decision to go with music as opposed to neuroscience? I was very lucky with my dad. I mean, he... He always insisted on getting an education before pursuing music, but he was uh, he was also equally supportive with my music. You know, he'd always he ran the school choir in our school, so he as long as everything was going well in school, he was very supportive of music. So when I rang him up and told him, you know, I think I'm going to move to London, he was okay with it because I had my degree, and uh, he just felt, you know, I wouldn't be happy until I, until I've tried. So you've got this passion for music, obviously that was that has obviously taken a hold of you. You're you're a serious songwriter million-selling artist now in the UK. Tell us about where that obsession began. What was, what was the first music that hit you that said, I want to do this for a living? It was definitely the musicians my dad was introducing me to. Um, people like Anita Baker as a vocalist and Mariah Carey and Whitney's and, and Nina Simone, especially as a songwriter. So even remember, I remember when I was younger, I was definitely adamant that uh, writing was, was going to be a big part of what I did and I wanted to, to create. I think it was the whole kind of, uh, it was like a thrill of creating something from nothing. And I, I guess I got addicted to it even very young. And I knew at seven that I definitely wanted to be a musician or felt like a musician. Wow, <laughs> at seven. <laughs> what about the songwriting? Because that's what you're, I think you, you really developed a name in the industry first as a songwriter. Yeah. When did you feel like you were writing songs that, hey, I can perform or I could send to somebody else and they would perform it? I mean, I always loved it growing up, but it was when I was maybe second or third year in med school. That's when I, I was kind of going down to London, meeting different producers, and I met a producer called uh, Shah, and we began writing together. And at that point, that's when I really felt like I had the connections to give the songs to people and to to pass them on. So I think then I really felt quite confident as a songwriter. Once you began, Emily, to rack up hits for, for songwriters, some with really big names. I mean, you've written for Susan Boyle and Leona Lewis. It still is a leap from coming from behind the scenes to getting in front of the microphone. Yeah. So what was that turning point like for you, where, where you decided, I, I'm going to sing songs that I wrote for myself now? It was a big learning curve, and it was a big uh, kind of leap of faith, I guess, because, you know, being a writer is a very, it's a comfortable job, and you still get to travel, you get the respect of your peers in the industry. I had to be quite brave to kind of step out there and take and take everything that comes with being an artist. And um, I definitely felt a real need to express myself as an artist and to get up and deliver the songs the way I felt they should be delivered. And some songs you just can't give away. Some songs are just so personal, you you want to sing them. So it was um, it was definitely a tough time for me getting used to 
not being in dark studios and um, kind of being quite selfish with your music. Um, but, and not you know, having to think about what you look like. Exactly. <laughs> you, know? you can look awful at 2 a.m. and nobody <laughs> yeah. cares. So um, that was a big thing. But I'm, I'm so glad that I did take that step and, and got signed as an artist. We're going to hear a song from you guys in a second. But before we get away from it, you said there's some songs you definitely want to keep for yourself. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about the difference between writing for another artist and and writing one that, you know, is just so personal that you can't share it with anyone else. Um, usually, if I'm writing for myself, it's it's inspired by very personal experiences or or my family or things that are part of my life. And sometimes you can bring that in when you're writing for somebody else, but it's just not as kind of, I don't know what the word is. Usually when you're writing for somebody else, you're thinking more about their life and you're helping to facilitate that expression. You're just there as a helper and kind of guiding it and trying to make it fit. But when it's when it's a song about myself, it's more of just a flow. It's just kind mm. of what comes out and how I'm feeling at that at that time. But that would seem to be what you just said would seem to be an indication of how you are as a songwriter, that you're thinking about their personality, you're trying to tailor a song yeah. for them. You know, the old classic idea in Brill Building Pop is you've got guys in a factory room, <laughs> men and women, they're just churning it out. Yeah. This song can work for anybody who picks it up. But you were trying to, if you wrote for Susan Boyle, you wanted to do something that was right for Susan Boyle. Yeah, you definitely want it to be, well, one, believable when they sing it. And you want it to, you want to help, you know. And I I love that because there aren't too many uh, female producers or female songwriters at the moment. So I love being able to sit in a room with another female in the industry and really have that connection that they might not have with a guy. So I like playing that role. And for me, it's a real challenge. And I guess I can bring some of my newer science into the room and I was just gonna say, it's trying like to you, understand people. You have this great bedside manner, no matter whether you're in music or in, in science. Um, tell us what you're going to play. We're going to start with Next to Me. I will find him, I'll find him 
Sunday on Sound Opinions with uh, Wayne Plummer on acoustic guitar. Emily, beautiful song next to me. And I know that lyrics are an extremely important part of what you do. Beautiful melody there, but you know, you strip it right down. It's it's about those words. It's about that melody. Yeah. And when you listen to a song like that, I'm thinking, you know, you could be singing about a friend, a lover, a family member. You could be singing about God, mm-hmm. you know? There's sort of a specificity there, but at the same time, it's sort of a universal aspect to it where a listener could insert themselves into the song and figure out what it's about and yeah. what it means to them. Is that the standard you're using as a songwriter, you know, in terms of what works for you as a lyric or not? And what were some of your influences in terms of, of developing that lyrical style? Hmm. I like to speak about the emotion as I like it to be specific. I like it to be, you know, to really be describing something important, but keeping it open, like you said, keeping it as open as possible without being kind of generic. And finding that line is always kind of what I think is the most difficult thing about writing songs. But yes, I want people around the world anywhere to be able to kind of connect and to to have their own story interpreted there. But I guess people I listen to, uh, I loved Bob Dylan. Um, I love Joni Mitchell. You know, writers from the Burl Building as well. I mean, those classic songs that last you know, that last decades are songs that are not dated. And I think sometimes when you get too introspective and it's too much about your own world, then it can kind of, it dates the song at times. So I wanted to, um, I wanted to keep them as open and as long lasting as possible. There's nowhere that I wouldn't follow. There's nothing that I won't do for your kiss. I love you like there's no tomorrow. Cause nothing ever felt like this. We'll have more with Emily Sanday after a short break on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And later in the show, Greg and I will review the new Jeff Tweedy-produced album by the Minnesota band Low. i 
Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. I'm here with Greg Cott. And that is John Lennon's Imagine, as imagined by our guest this week, Emily Sanday. Emily, who's a gifted songwriter in her own right, was asked to cover that song by the BBC. And I asked her if it was intimidating singing such an iconic pop song. No religion to Imagine all Well, that song was done, uh, I recorded that around the Olympics, and it was the BBC asked me, would you mind singing Imagine? Mm. And at first I was, I just thought, whoa, you know, that's, <laughs> that's quite a lot. But, you know, introducing the song to perhaps a younger generation that may not have heard it was, was interesting to me, and also that I just love the song. But what, what drew me to that song and why people love it? Again, it's it's so simple. You know, he's very poetic with his lyric, and uh, I think, you know, a lot of poetry has been lost in pop music. It shows with that song, it stands the test of time, it speaks to people around the world, because he has been very effective and very, very poetic in his... In his in his wording and his lyrics, so I just love that song. You know, it's everyone does. It's, it's beautiful, and uh, I did feel very. Uh, I was quite afraid to to cover that song, but I'm glad. I'm glad we got it on there. Is there something lacking in contemporary music that you feel from from a lyrical standpoint? It's really not saying what what songs used to be able to say. I have a lot of discussions about you know, songwriters and the kind of the state of songwriting at the moment. And we are in a very fast time. But that sense of storytelling and that sense of poetry, I do feel has been lost because everyone's in a rush to hear something quickly and to dance to it. And sometimes, you know, I do feel it's a shame and I'd love to bring that back. When you're writing as many songs as you did when you were basically a songwriter, what did you use as a songwriter to keep yourself inspired? Like, are you focusing completely on a, on the task at hand? Like, I'm writing a song for Leona Lewis right now, and I want to get inside her head. Yeah. Or are you thinking, are you, are you going somewhere else in terms of just looking for, for inspiration to keep yourself going? Yeah, I always find it very difficult to to sit and just write as if it were a nine-to-five job or there was a project. Usually I just kind of find, well, hope to find inspiration from life and from people and emotions, but it's always hard. You know, right now I feel a bit of a writer's block because we've been on tour so long, we've been promoting the songs that have been made. But I think every time I want to feel inspired, you can find it in so many different forms of art. We're talking to Emily Sanday on Sound Opinions. 
Emily is your middle name. Yes. Adele, fortuitously. Uh, I mean, talk about the cosmic coincidences of all time. <laughs> Adele was your first name. Couldn't use that in the music world because of that other force. Yes. It was a, a mad coincidence because I'd never really met anyone called Adele before. Mm. And I, my first song that I featured on was a song called uh, Diamond Rings with a rapper called Chipmunk. And uh, I got an email saying, what do you want on the CD case? And at this point, Adele had, you know, was breaking out. And so I thought I'm, I definitely... I must change my name, and I picked my middle name. I was Rio for a week until someone said, that sounds like Rio Grande, and my mum really hated it as well. So I picked my middle name, Emily. Commercially, Adele was such a, a nuclear bomb blast mm. on the music industry. But in the UK, you've had the distinction of having the fastest-selling debut album since Susan Boyle, right? Mm. The song you played for us uh, a little while ago next to me was a global hit, but you're still, you're in America now. Yeah. What's all that pressure like commercially for you, Emily? Um, I don't know. I mean, for me, if you come here and, and think about that type of pressure and think about how big over here is, it will drive you insane. So yeah. for me, the, the only way I can approach it and the only way I know how is the same way I had in the UK, which was just starting very small and, and focusing on the shows and the people who know you first and you have to have fun and you have to enjoy the small victories you know you have to enjoy you know selling out a small venue and then next time coming to a bigger venue and so for me I'm just enjoying the small steps and building it you must build a foundation you know and, and that's what I'm doing and uh, I'm just more excited about the challenge than anything else and um, trying not to go crazy with any kind of pressure <laughs> <laughs> You mentioned uh, Diamond Rings, and that was kind of the, the song that people associate you with as, as sort of the breakthrough in 2009 for, for Chipmunk. Did it tangibly change your life, uh, having a song of that magnitude? Not really. I mean, it changed It changed a lot. It opened doors. Um, people were like, oh, who wrote that? And then and then you, someone else asks you to write something. So I always see things as just little steps. I think if people have this impression that you have your big break and everything comes and um, no chipmunk, that was, a, that was how I got signed as a songwriter. So that's kind of, it was an important step, yeah. And Jim was mentioning this whole idea of, of breaking through to the States. There is a certain amount of pressure, you know, I, I would imagine from management, from record companies, et cetera. How do you deal with it on a day-to-day -day basis? You, you, say, you, you say you appreciate the small stuff, but are you able to sort of insulate yourself so that you can focus on what's important, which is the art and the craft of writing songs? Yeah, I mean, you try, and I'm trying, but I think only until I can have time to write, that's when I can really focus on, on creating. You know, you kind of have to have two separate brains, one for promoting the music, one for creating it. So I think I would, that's the biggest pressure for me, trying to write something that I feel is better than what I've, I've written before. And I think I feel that pressure way more than anything from a record company or, or uh, management. 
Sounds like you miss those 2 a.m.s where you're there by yourself, you know, writing songs. You don't (laughs) have that anymore. Yeah, I mean, I, you miss it. You know, I miss being a writer and I miss just having that freedom of just writing and creating. And that's all you have to do. That's your only only responsibility. Well, what are you going to play for us next? Uh, This next one is a cover of Coldplay's Every Teardrop is a Waterfall. Coldplay heard this and invited us on tour with them, so it's got special meaning for me, this song. Sunday on Sound Opinions, Every Teardrop is a Waterfall by Coldplay. Wayne Plummer on guitar there. Oh, that was phenomenal. I thought I hated that song or was sick of it anyway. <laughs> All right. So, you know, this is a show, Emily, hosted by two rock critics. What is it about that song that worked for you that Chris did right? 
This song, uh, the lyric is beautiful. You know, I'd rather be a comma than a full stop. You know, even if you just mm. read that on paper, it's it's beautiful and it really um, it's inspiring. You got a chance to study them too. You were on tour with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people in the United States got introduced to you from seeing you open for Coldplay. Yeah, it's a tough position to be in. The unknown opening act for a major band. Mm-hmm. How did it go for you? I mean, I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot from the tour. You know, standing in front of people who have no idea who you are, who've come to see somebody completely different, is a challenge and you kind of see it. They first two songs, they're kind of into it. By the third song, you see them warming up a bit. And I really enjoyed it. And I love that challenge. Speaking of universal events, you know, stadium rock shows, you also performed at the Olympics last year in London, mm. right? That must have been uh, an incredible challenge in, in, on a number of levels. You know, what was what was that like? What was the experience of doing that like? And what were the cha- special challenges to you as somebody going from that 2 a.m. bedroom writing songs mm-hmm. to that stage? The first time I felt really nervous was on the night right before b- before going on stage. Before that, I think I got caught up in the excitement of working with Danny Boyle, being involved in, in such an incredible production. And I think that that helped ease the nerves because you're a small part of a massive production. But I think the responsibility of presenting um, a song like Abide With Me, that was kind of the biggest pressure on me and in front of so many people and and also representing your country. Those are the three things making me very nervous to mm-hmm. do it. But, you know, afterwards when it had gone well and, and the reaction to the opening ceremony back home was was just fantastic. It felt, you know, such an honor to be to have been imbo- involved in it. But it was, you know, Abide With Me is such a personal song to so many people. You know, people um, people came up to me afterwards saying, God, that, that song meant so much to me. We, we played it at my, my granddad's funeral. We played it at so many places and football fans love it. So for me, that was the biggest thing, getting it right and presenting those lyrics correctly. You know, you're in a giant setting like this, and this is the dirty little secret of the Super Bowl. No one sings live. Oh, really? You know, they're they're supposedly oh, yeah, every, they lip sync. Everything oh. is canned. So tell me, what, what are the dirty secrets about performing at a mega event like the Olympics? Is it is it canned? Is or are you up there? That, that wasn't really, really the queen. Well, yeah, we were doing it. I was doing it live. I would have felt a lot easier <laughs> if I was miming. But really, okay, no, yeah, so it, it was all live. Yeah, and this was, I mean, all I had in my ear was this drone underneath um, me singing. So it, it was very exposed and very raw. You know, I just wanted to make sure I started in the right key and mm-hmm. um, that I remember the lyrics. But yeah, it was all live. So the ear monitor screwed up. You couldn't hear yourself, basically, is what you're saying. Oh, no, uh, that that was how it was supposed to be because it, it was supposed <laughs> to be just kind of this drone underneath uh-huh. and the dancers. And so that's how Danny Boyle wanted it. So Oh, my God. And that's how it worked well, very effective. Like that. We have Emily Sunday in the studio with Wayne Plummer. Uh, Emily, what are you going to play for us next? Um, the last song I'm going to sing is called Read All About It.
you've got the words to change a nation, but you're biding your time. You spent a lifetime stuck in silence, afraid that you'll say something wrong. If no one ever hears it, how we gonna learn your song? So come on, come on, come on, come on. You've got a heart as loud as lions, so why let your voice be tamed? Maybe we're a little different. There's no need to be ashamed. You've got the light to fight the shadows, so stop hiding it away. Come on, come on. I wanna sing. I wanna shout. I wanna scream till the words dry out. So put it in all of the pages. I'm not afraid they can read all about it. Read all about it. it oh, 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 oh. At night we're waking up the neighbors while we sing away the blues. Making sure that we're remembered Cause we all matter too If the truth has been forbidden Then we're breaking all the rules So come on, come on Let's get the TV and the radio To play our tune again It's about time we had some airplay Of our version of events there's no need to be afraid I will sing with you, my friend Come on, come on I want to sing I want to shout I want to scream Till the words dry out So put it in all of the pages I'm not afraid They can read all about it, read all about it, it oh, 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 yes, we're all wonderful, wonderful people, so when did we all get so fearful, now we're finally Finding our voices So take a chance Come help me sing this Yes, we're all wonderful Wonderful people So when did we all get so fearful And now we're finally Finding our voices So take a chance Come help me sing this yeah, I wanna sing, I wanna shout, I wanna scream till the words dry out. So put it in all of the papers. I'm not afraid they can read all about it, read all about it. it oh, oh, oh. oh. I want 
gonna scream till the words dry out. Put it in all of the papers. I'm not afraid. They can read all about it. Read all about it. Oh. Emily Sande and Wayne Plummer read all about it. Emily, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for coming by. Thanks for having me. Dreaming only lasts until you wake up and you find you're not asleep. To hear all the songs from today's interview with Emily Sande, go to soundopinions.org. Got a comment on today's show or anything else in the world of music? Do you agree with Emily that the poetry is missing from pop music today? Give us a call at 888-859-1800. Coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, we review the new album from Lowe, and it's my turn to drop a quarter into the Desert Island jukebox. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. That is a song called Plastic Cup by the Duluth, Minnesota-based band Low from their new album, The Invisible Way. Greg, this is the 10th studio album in this band's career. They are celebrating their 20th anniversary. They came together in 1993 up there in the cold gray lands of Minnesota, the north of Minnesota, Duluth, and have been really giving us great music ever since for 20 years through a series of fine independent labels. They were on Vernon Yard. They were on the Chicago-based Cranky label. They put out a record themselves. Now they're on Sub Pop one of the most respected indies in the U.S. The core of the band has remained consistent for 20 years. We have drummer-vocalist Mimi Parker and her husband, guitarist-vocalist Alan Sparhawk. Bassists have come and gone, and different producers and different people playing with them have come and gone, but the core always has been that couple, and I think that after Sonic Youth and Yola Tango, they represent one of the most famous couples in indie rock history. Here on this 10th studio album, they came to Chicago to record. They went to that loft on the north side of Chicago that is owned and, and run as a recording studio by Jeff Tweedy of Wilco. 
what are they giving us after so many years of us thinking we have low down? Let's play a track, and we'll come back and we'll give our opinions. This is a song called So Blue by Low from The Invisible Way on Sound Opinions. Dream the day. That is So Blue from the new Low album, The Invisible Way. As Jim mentioned, uh, Jeff Tweedy, the producer on that record from Wilco. But Tweedy's touch is pretty invisible on this record, Jimmy. Basically stays out of the way. Let this band do what they do so well. Create a lot of space and atmosphere around the arrangements. Two somewhat subtle shifts in their sound, but I think significant on this record that differentiates it from the previous nine mostly excellent records that they've made. One, I'm hearing a lot more piano on this record. Mm -hmm. Uh, The bassist, Steve Garrington, is playing it. And it's sort of bringing out some of those gospel undertones that have always been in their music. Uh, They've been infused by some of this religious imagery, but it's always been very subtle. Now they're bringing in a musical element that's sort of echoing some of that. And the second thing is, usually Alan Sparhawk sings the majority of the vocals, but on this record, they're pretty evenly split with his wife, drummer Mimi Parker, singing quite a few more leads. I think she's the lead on about five songs on this record. And that's a great thing. She's got a terrific voice, especially on those anthems. We just played one of them, So Blue. There's another great one on the record called Just Make It Stop. Wonderful thing. What a voice. The serenity in that voice. Their songs can paint some bleak pictures, but you always think... There's redemption at the end of the road when you hear Mimi Parker's voice. And that's the way I love to hear this record. I I think it's one of the best albums Lowe has made. Not many bands we can talk about in their second decade, well into their second decade, soon to begin their third, making great music. And Lowe is definitely one of them. A buy-it record all the way for me. 
Well, Greg, as our listeners know or need to be reminded from time to time, you and I don't compare opinions before we sit down. We want to get each other's reactions fresh. I'm looking to you for some help here. I I have been listening to Lowe for 20 years. I have never disliked anything Lowe has recorded. They've been a guest on Sound Opinions. On the other hand, I've never thought anything Lowe has recorded has been extraordinary. You know, if I was grading it like I do my papers at Columbia College, it would be a B, B plus, which is certainly respectable, but never knocked me out of the park. Not like their obvious influence, Galaxy 500. This one is a masterpiece. It blows my mind, and I've been listening nonstop since I received an advance from Sub Pop, and I don't know why. <laughs> I grant, yeah, more piano, more Mimi, and it's Mimi's interplay with Alan's vocals that I, is key, I think. It's not that she's a great singer. He on his own isn't a great singer. It's the two of them together. But above and beyond that, there's something in the songwriting here. You know, I, I have a knee-jerk reaction to being preached to. I don't mind religious themes in the music, but I don't want to be lectured. They've never done that. But here, that dismal Old Testament vibe with just the hint of sunlight, of New Testament redemption, is coming through in a more ambiguous and therefore deeper way than ever before. And I just think the songwriting has taken a jump by leaps and bounds. I love this album. It's a very enthusiastic buy it from me as well as from you. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as possible here on Sound Opinions, we like to take a trip to the desert island and play you a track that we cannot live without. About a week ago, Greg hopped in the inner tube and began paddling. He is now on the desert island. What do you have for us, Mr. Cott? Jim, a few weeks ago, I went to see Emmylou Harris and Rodney Crowell in concert. Richard Thompson was opening for them a great show. And Emmylou does a version of the song, I'm About to Play, and it reminded me of the greatness of this song. We also had Steve Earle in the studio a few years ago uh, performing this song and talking about the greatness of the songwriter, Towns Van Zant, one of his great influences, and one of the great, most influential songwriters of the last 30 years, though many people probably don't even know his name. Van Zant was a Texas songwriter. He, he moved to Houston and got his first paying gigs on the folk scene there in the mid-60s and then made a string of albums where basically the bulk of his career was contained, about 30, 35 really good songs. His health deteriorated precipitously in the 80s and 90s. He died at the age of 52 in 1997. The song that I'm going to play, Poncho and Lefty, is perhaps best known for its version in the 80s by Willie Nelson and Merle Haggard, but I'm going to play the original version by, by Towns from one of his albums in the early 70s. To me, the scenario that he's describing in this song could be straight out of a Sam Peckinpah Western. You know, these men of few words on the open plains, <laughs> drifters alone, you know. They're resolving to live a certain kind of life outside the margins of society, even if it means, you know, their own self-destruction. So Poncho ends up dying in, in this song. And Lefty is left uh, hanging around, and, and Towns kind of asks this existential question in the song. Who had it better, the guy who died alone in the desert or Lefty, his friend, who's left to sort of you know, go drift through life without 
the one person in his life that he cared for the most? Who had the worst end in that deal? That's a question our producers often ask about the two of us. <laughs> I'm sure they do. And, you know, I saw Towns perform this song near the end of his life, and he would break down in the middle of it. He couldn't finish the song because in some ways I think he felt like he was, he could see his own death in a way, and he was wondering, you know, would it have been better to finish this off 20 years before mm. I'm, going, I'm going through what I'm going through now? In any case, the melody redeems it. Despite all that despair you may hear in the lyrics, it's got this beautiful blues melody with a hint of mariachi music. All the things that Towns loved in life brought into this song. Pancho and Lefty from Towns Van Zant on Sound Opinions. Living on the road, my friend What's gonna keep you free and clean? Now you wear your skin like iron And your breath's as hard as kerosene You weren't your mama's only boy But her favorite one, it seems She began to cry when you said goodbye Sank into your dreams Well, Pancho was a bandit boys His horse was fast as polished steel Wore his gun outside his pants For all the honest world to feed Well, Pancho met his match, you know On the desert stand in Mexico Nobody heard his dying words Oh, but that's the way it goes And all the federales say They could have had him any day They only let him hang around Out of kindness, I suppose Lefty, he can't sing the blues All night long like he used to The dust that Poncho bit down south Ended up in Lefty's mouth The day they laid poor Poncho low Lefty split for Ohio Where he got the bread to go Oh, there ain't nobody knows That was Poncho and Lefty by the great Towns Van Zant. Greg Cott's Desert Island Jukebox pick for this week. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we have an in-studio visit from the singer and the amazing guitarist, Kurt Vile. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Emily Sanday was recorded by Mary Gaffney. Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lynn, Jason Saldana, and Annie Minoff. And our fearless leader, our executive producer, Tori Southside Malatia, he performed at the Olympics too, but they cut it out. We're told. Poncho needs your prayers, it's true. We'll save a few for Lefty too. He just did what he had to do And now he's growing old Operator, oh could you help me place this car See the number on the matchbook is old and faded On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages.
Hi, Greg and Jim. This is Bo from Chicago-adjacent Willowbrook, Illinois. Just finished listening to the Grand Slam episode and thought it was fantastic, except I'm not sure. I listened to the opening three times to find the rules because you guys just decided not to include the Beatles, uh, starting with Help and going all the way through the White Album. There's a string of seven albums that seem to make good sense for a Grand Slam. Also, you did Husker Du, but left off that other great 80s band that owned and dominated the 80s, R.E.M. And starting with Murmur, Reckoning, Fables of the Reconstruction, and Life's Rich Pageant, those are four excellent, defining works of 80s alternative rock. Again, keep up the good work, guys. You hit a lot of singles out there, but you missed a couple of easy ground balls. Thanks. Bye. Hi, this is Chris from Brooklyn. I was intrigued by your Grand Slam idea because it's such a high bar. For example, take Prince. He had an amazing 80s with at least five great albums. But just when he's starting to build a streak with 1999 and Purple Rain, he'll drop something a little fluffy like Around the World in a Day. I don't think he ever got four straight. mentioned LCD sound system. I think if you include James Murphy's superb, mostly instrumental album, 4533, admittedly a minor work, but I, for one, play it all the time, that gives them four straight. So basically, LCD's entire career. It's a fun concept, guys. Thanks for generating a great topic for future debates at the pub. This is Jenny in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and I just listened to your episode about music's grand slams, but I think you missed a really obvious one, which is Bruce Springsteen. My name is Arlen. I was art director of Bruce Springsteen's first fan magazine, Thunder Road. You basically have his first seven albums are all brilliant, so any four. My name is Michael Schwartz. Bruce Springsteen, starting with The Wild, The Innocent, Lee Street Shuffle, then Born to Run, Album 2, Masterpiece, greatest rock and roll album of all time. Sprung from cages on Darkness on the Edge of Town and The River. And then a fifth, uh, uh, Nebraska. 
I could keep going, but those are really the five that stick out the most to me. So, thanks a lot. Keep up the good work. Everything dies, baby, that's a fact. Maybe everything that dies someday comes back. Put your makeup on, fix your hair pretty, and meet me tonight in Atlantic City. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.